Hello and welcome to the Get French Football News Show. France is not yet qualified for Euro 2020. Three days after a 1-0 win in Iceland, which put us all into a hibernating sleep, Les Bleus were defrosted in the microwave that was the Stade de France and its tens of thousands of Turkish fans. Olivier Giroud scored again, but it was not enough to earn a win for France this time. We'll discuss this latest round of international fixtures and the most recent Ligue 1 headlines, such as why Lyon omitted consulting their fans before appointing Rudy Garcia as the new manager and Neymar getting injured again. I'm Pierre-Paul Birmingham and I have a panel for you today. Welcome to the show. Tony Thomas, how are you doing? Hey, how are you? Happy to be here. Great to have you on. Tony, tell us a little bit about yourself. Is there a team uh, you support in France? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure you would ask. Of course, it's Lyon. Um, and so I'm interested for today's show, and uh, we'll, see, uh, we'll see what the rest of you guys think. We'll certainly come around to that. It's good <laughs> to have you on for that. And that way we can know as well if there's any subjects you might be a little bit biased on. <laughs> Also with us today, the editor-in-chief of Get Fridge Football News, Christian Nori. Hi, Christian. Hi, Pierre-Paul. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's great to have you on. It, it, it's been a while since you've been on. I mean, not that I can remember, but I have been around always at GFFN. Have you been on before? Yeah, no, it's probably been about two years, Pierre-Paul. So oh, wow. you're very lucky tonight. No. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> special occasion. But uh, you've been working on, a, on another exciting podcast project. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Yes, absolutely. Well, guys listening at home, actually on the very same podcast feed that this will be available on, we've been doing something called the President's Podcast, where I spend time with some of the most important people uh, on the French football landscape. And so I think there are two episodes out already with... Uh, the owner of Bordeaux, Joe de Grosse, and the owner of Lorient, Loïc Ferry. Um, and that's been great. It's been really great to get their insights and, and most importantly, get you guys a bit more insight into what it takes to run a football club. Yeah, it's been fascinating to listen to. Have you found uh, the next uh, interviewee? We do. We actually have two this week, but I'm not going to tell you. Ooh, okay. Oh. <laughs> we'll, we'll be waiting impatiently. Right, uh, let's get started with uh, the France-Turkey match, which took place on Monday night. We're recording uh, just a few minutes after the end of it. And it was a 1-1 draw, so no wins against Turkey this year for France, following the 2-0 uh, uh, loss in Konya back in June. Tony, uh, even though France didn't win, is it fair to say this was an improvement on uh, the, the Iceland match, in terms of entertainment at least? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was they used much more width in this game. Uh, Hernandez was leaking up with Coman. Uh, it was really beautiful football, honestly. And then Griezmann, he kind of seemed like he got a bit uh, confidence back, uh, it, which mm -hmm. I think is all that it was. I think the time at Barcelona has been a bit up and down. So I think it's kind of messed with his psyche a bit. But today he really seemed uh, really aggressive and he was linking up that those three um, kind of they were linking up all game uh, and it really created some beautiful chances. Yeah, absolutely. And and Sissoko, too, was playing very well with Griezmann in, in the first half in particular. Christian, I thought Sissoko was a little bit the first half was reminiscent of the Euro 2016 final, in my opinion. Would you agree with that? I don't really want to ever think about that match again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, listen, I think 
I thought it was interesting that, you know, we've, we've got to know Didier Deschamps as someone who likes to be stuck in his ways in this adventure with him as the head of the French national team. I thought it was very interesting that he made, to me, two really quite big changes for what was the most important game in this group. Um, one is he inverted the kind of asymmetric 4-2-3-1 that yeah. won the World Cup. So what I mean by that is that typically... Uh, the shape that Didier Deschamps goes for is a 4-2-3-1 going forward, but a 4-3-3 without the ball. So typically mm -hmm. Matuidi will play as a nominal left midfielder and then join the three. Um, tonight Matuidi was playing as part of the two. And that's obviously because both N'Golo Conte and Paul Pogba, who would typically start in those two positions, have fitness issues to varying degrees of seriousness. Mm -hmm. So not only did he switch... The side at which that 4-2-3-1 was asymmetric with Sissoko, I think, supposed to be playing a bit deeper uh -huh. than uh, Coman on the other side. But he obviously chooses to, to start with Sam Benyeda, which I'm sure we'll get on to. Um, mm. Listen, I like Musa Sissoko. I actually think from an attitude perspective, he's probably one of the greatest professionals that France have had in the 21st century. That may be saying, I mean, maybe that sounds like I'm saying a lot, but if you followed France closely, <laughs> it's not saying so much. Um Maybe, but uh, look, he's a fantastic <laughs> professional, but I think actually, you know, in the last 12 to 18 months, he's got a lot of joy in a kind of a more box-to-box -box central role with Tottenham over in England. And whilst, whilst he was countering at pace, which I think is perhaps was fairly unique for, for most of that game in comparison to his French teammates, whilst he was showing some good flashes, the end product wasn't there from him tonight yeah. and, and really from anybody, to be honest. Yeah, that's a little a little bit true. I'm always very glad to hear uh, to hear other people noticing that shift from the four two three one to four three three that happens in every French match, the asymmetric um, formation you talked about. Because you know sometimes when I see people criticizing Deschamps, I think I must be going crazy, and I must be the only one seeing it that he's you know got this interesting plan set up. But thank you for that analysis, Christian. It was it was very good. Uh, the other change you mentioned briefly, as of course, was Wissam Benyed are starting in play in as the number nine instead of Olivier Giroud. What did you make of that decision, Tony? Was it probably due to Giroud's fitness levels? Um, well, I think maybe there was uh, a bit of lack. Of, there may have been of uh, some creativity issues there also, but I, I, I definitely think it came down to maybe fitness and just trying to get him, you know, slowly back up to uh, international play. But um, I mean, just in general, uh, yeah, I kind of there was a play. I think it was in um, the like the six, uh, maybe the sixtieth minute there, where where Benyetter was in the box, and you could almost just imagine uh, a Jude being there and like chesting the ball, you know, to to Griezmann mm. or to one of the wingers, and he kind of he kind of made a mess of it. It was this completely crowded box, and you're like, uh, yeah, this is why Jude's typically here. Yeah. Um, but just to touch on on what you said earlier about you know coming back into the four three three, it almost was like um, you know early on with Sokoko there, it was almost like that four three two one, like that Christmas tree formation at some points. But it, it you know it kind of really uh, kind of highlighted that old school four uh, four three two one um, early on, but didn't really have that holding center forward uh, to to finish it off. Yeah, absolutely, and. We saw a big change uh, in the match. Obviously, in the first half, France was slightly dominating more. But, uh, Christian, in the second half, Hakan um, Salahanoglu, I hope I say his name right, the one who plays for AC Milan, yeah. 
Chalhanoglu, yeah. Chalhanoglu, yeah. He came on at halftime and uh, really changed the game for Turkey, didn't he? I mean, a little bit. I'm not sure it was maybe as drastic as as your sort of question seemed to suggest. I think, you know, what he brought was one fantastic set-piece delivery, which he's known for, uh, actually, mm-hmm. in European football. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, some, someone to play a little bit in between the lines uh, for Turkey, which felt, frankly, like they were missing in the first half. Um, but I mean, let's be honest. Okay, maybe the maybe the the kind of persistency of French pressure was a little bit more broken up in the second half. But I don't feel like it, you know, it necessarily moved the needle of the overall shape of the way in which the game was going and the game was played. I mean, I think in both of these two sets of matches, what has been frustrating to see is more generally the kind of lethargic nature in which France have been constructing attacks. Um, and I think, to be honest, that was down to a couple of reasons, and they're both slightly different in both games. I think the first game was a hard place to go. It's you know, it's from yeah. a from kind of uh, geographical weather type perspective, and then also the atmosphere, etc. That's a very difficult place to go. So there was naturally a little bit of uneasiness in the first twenty minutes against Iceland, and then tonight, you know, it was it was tricky when you have Paul Pogba in there. In, in, in the two, you can be sure that he's going to be seeking to move the ball on with with, with a fair amount of pace, right? Okay, some, mm. of, his, some of his passes may be a little bit too um, uh, ambitious at times and, and the accuracy might not be there. But you had a lot of players playing tonight who really, I think, felt the pressure of the occasion and felt like this was a really key game for them in terms of either staking a claim to be in that starting 11 in less than 12 months' time, hopefully for the Euro, should France get there. Uh, or actually just to, to, to show themselves to be some some sort of weight for, for the 23. I mean, I thought Wissam Ben Yedda today played without courage or conviction. Um, and you could see with, with each touch that didn't work out or each attempt at a link-up with Griezmann or Coman that wasn't quite there, his confidence continued to wane and wane. And I was surprised that Didier Deschamps waited until I think it was around the 68th minute or so um, that uh, Olivier Giroud was, was hauled on. Mm-hmm. And... I thought Coco Tuliso today was a bit better uh, than he was against Iceland. But, you know, again, it, it's very much playing not to make a mistake. And right. uh, whilst I understand that tactically, because actually the kind of playing with zero fear uh, back in, in Turkey in summer fundamentally failed, it did feel, you know, to, to borrow a phrase from Arsene Wenger, a little bit like the handbrake was on tonight. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and yeah, we kind of saw that already back on Friday against Iceland with Wissam Ben Yedder. He had a, one or two very, you know, very good chances to get a goal towards the end of the match and missed both of them, which is really strange given, you know, his obvious form right now with, with Monaco. But that, you know, you picked up on Deschamps' kind of slowness to make a substitution. And that's something that's happened, that happens quite often. He's always, he never makes early substitutions um, or, or very rarely. And, you know, I feel maybe that's one thing that he might be able to improve on. It, it does raise the question of, I mean, we always talk about how France has so much talent available, so much, you know, depth in, in the national pool, so many players they could select. But whenever players like Mbappe or Pogba or Kante, Kante are missing, as they were over this break, uh, we do, the players who, who take their positions in the starting lineup never really fa- never really succeed to live up in their shoes. 
I find. Tony, is that something you would agree with? Well, it kind of goes back to what Christian was saying, kind of almost almost starting with Taliso. Um, you know, France, the way they play, they need they need those the backs to use the width, and they need the midfielders to be to be um, all around. You know, uh, Pogba has the ability to make these these uh, passes and these through balls and these pings that that gets the game going, and uh, Taliso just doesn't have that sort of quality. Um, and, and Matuidi being there, it's he he was I thought it was actually really refreshing to see him back uh, at the two with uh, you know next to Taliso, but. When you don't have uh, um, Pogba there, and you don't have a, a, a you know a, a holding center forward, the way his, the the formation is set up is to play through the wingers and and those attacking players, uh, mm. uh, and without those those uh, the excellence of the midfield, it doesn't it just doesn't get along, um, and, and it also is difficult to have. You know, like you said, Sokoko, uh, he, he, he does bring this level of professionalism and uh, effort. Like, it, it, there was a couple of times where the finishing wasn't there, the touch wasn't quite there, but the effort was just, you know, just immense. And, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't having, you know, uh, you know Mbappe, it wasn't having uh, um, uh, Pogba there to make this, this sort of finishing uh, quality. And do you think that, I mean, I have another question which, you know, might, be uh, might contradict my previous one but in, in in the end does it matter that much whether france plays very well or not for qualifying matches because are, i mean are they are they a good indicator of you know how france will perform next summer uh, uh yeah i mean people i think it's a good question but i, I want to add some context to what we've sort of seen in in these qualifiers Didier Deschamps' main objective after that failed first match with Australia, which was a complete pain to watch, um, was to build a team... Back in the World Cup. Yeah, back in the World Mm. Cup, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, Back in the World Cup was was, um, to build a team that would absolutely not lose. And so Mm. you have, in Paul, I think we can all agree tonight that in Paul Pogba, Kylian Mbappé and Ingo Conte, you have three absolutely generational talents, incredible players. Mm. Um, and so the plan, which ultimately ended up working, was actually to evoke moments of counterattacking brilliance, mm-hmm. uh, playing against sides that were frankly more cohesive than France, whether it was Belgium, um, the Argentina game was a bit more crazy, but even Uruguay and the, Uruguay and the way they played, the kind of more, uh, there was kind of more solidarity there. And actually the final against Croatia was a little bit wobbly. Mm. Um, but Didier Deschamps did not want to be in a situation again where, you know, you, they could get done in the 118th minute by uh, Eder, for example, going back to the Euro 2016 final. But but typically the possession, the amount of possession that France had in most of those games was around or below the 50% mark in the World Cup. Um, now, obviously, yeah. Yeah, OK, so now they're in a different context. They're world champions and everybody in this group uh, actually doesn't matter whether it's Turkey or Andorra. Uh, has been sitting back with three banks of you know of, of players and really trying to be as resolute as possible. So you know France, for example, Opta put out a stat over the weekend. France have had the most amount of possession in uh, average amount of possession per game in these Euro 2020 qualifiers. So that means that you have a system which is the same, but actually playing in a completely different context. 
And so France have not actually, in, in, in my view, really blown anybody away entirely at all in, the, in these qualifiers. Maybe hinting a little bit of what you're saying about does it really matter about the result? Maybe mm. it doesn't, right? Because maybe we can, we can stick with this formation uh, when we start to play better caliber opposition in Euro 2020. But because of this, this system basically built on individual brilliance, it's very, very intimidating and difficult for players who just aren't of that quality of generational talent necessarily yet. Right. Uh, we don't have that confidence like Corentin Tuliso or Wissam Benyeda to come in tonight. Um, and so I think that's kind of just an important contextual point about whether it matters to, you know, how, how basically France qualify for uh, Euro 2020. <laughs> I mean, the fans will probably say no. Um, I think Didier Deschamps would probably say yes. <laughs> um, but uh, I, think, I think the difficulty is that when we look back on these qualifiers, we can't really say that, you know, France, OK, he played his best team every single match and uh, we completely obliterated the, you know, the entirety of the opposition, mm. continuing on the high wave of confidence from the World Cup and you know, going into the Euros with that mentality. Nor can he say, you know what, I've actually taken this as a time to experiment with different shapes, different personnel, different players, and actually, okay, maybe the results haven't been as fantastic as, and, and consistent as we'd want them to be, uh, but... Uh, doesn't matter because actually we're, we're, we're building confidence in, in areas of the 23-man squad, which may come important if we face an injury crisis like the one that France has faced uh, in this international break with Mbappé, Pogba and Conte not fit. So I actually think it does matter. And I, and I think there is right. this element that is uh, going to at least be in the back of the mind of Didier Deschamps. I mean, maybe fans won't care. Um but you know the, the the way in which he's treated this qualifying round, and I think it's in part was 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 brought about. I think he would have been a little bit more experimental had France done you know kind of wiped the floor with everybody in in that uh, non competition, the UEFA Nations League. Um, mm. But that wasn't the case. You know that that just wasn't the case. Netherlands completely obliterated uh, France, true, yeah. and and so all of a sudden, actually, we're going to be relying on Olivier Giroud and Blaise Matuidi, so long as they're fit. Um, for Euro 2020. And I don't mind that. I love both of them, uh, I think, more than most people. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, I think actually it's difficult to say that France have necessarily moved forward in any context uh, over the course of, of these qualifiers. Yeah, that's a very good point. And it's it's kind of true as well that I don't know if it's a mentality question or something, but we've France have never been very good at qualifying. I mean, in recent history, they've always qualified, but, you know, sometimes with, with difficulty and, you know, for better or worse at the tournaments. But it, yeah, I don't think it's, it probably isn't a, a, a very good indicator. Tony, did, do you have anything you wanted to add to that? I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of agree with the last part Christian said that it may be because like, you know, they, they didn't blow anyone out of the water, that there wasn't a bit of experimentation. But like we said, like, so even going back to the, you know, you know, to the older '98 squad, it relied on it relied on the the attacking players, and with this squad, it, it relies on Giroud being that holding uh, holding forward, and and Mbappe and Griezmann creating those those attacking options. Well, if there is an injury to Giroud or you know Mbappe like we have now, I I would expect that you'd have to you, we kind of we kind of range a manager by their ability to make these sort of of adjustments. 
And you would think maybe, okay, like if if we don't have the M- Mbappe available and Giroud does have a fitness issue or we're trying to work him up to this fitness, uh, why not try something different that utilizes some of the uh, um, attacking options France has available? Mm. Uh, one man we haven't talked about that much yet and that we definitely should is Olivier Giroud. And I'm going to very selfishly... <laughs> talk about him myself because he was obviously the one who scored the winning penalty uh, against Iceland back on Friday while Griezmann was receiving treatment off on the side of the pitch. He scored again today just two or three minutes after coming on. Uh, scored a corner after a, you know, he, he obtained the corner with what could have been called as a handball potentially. Didn't get it just like against Iceland, by the way, where he also could have obtained a penalty uh, for, for an, a handball which he didn't get. And uh, slightly ironically, the goal he scored, his header took a slight deflection off a Turkish hand before going in. So it was uh, there was some justice there for him. And he's now on 38 goals for the French national team. And he two goals this international round, having only played 18 minutes with Chelsea since the last round of national team fixtures. One final point uh, on this match, Christian, there was uh, some apprehension about what might happen in the stands with, you know, uh, around 30,000 Turkish fans expected at the match. Obviously, a, a, a complicated political and diplomatic situation between France and Turkey at the moment. But in the end, it seems that everything went quite well. Well, yeah, I mean, we'll have to wait and see um, if there are any reports post-match because... Um, I, I was told that the, the main concern wasn't that something was necessarily going to erupt in the stadium, but actually maybe there'd be some scuffles outside of it, um, both on the way in and on the way out. There didn't seem to be any, well, any reports or anything that I've heard of, of, of trouble before mm-hmm. the game. Um, you know, I think it's uh, really, it's, it's kind of not for us to comment um, the, the tension that, that was stoked and, and, and concerned, uh, started to concern French authorities over the weekend was this salute that the Turkish players performed. I believe it was during the national anthems. And uh, after scoring as well, yeah. And after scoring, yeah. Um, uh, for their match against Albania on Friday, I believe it was. Um, and, and so, you know, listen, football is, is so far away from, in, in my view, um, uh, basically the, the events going on in Syria uh, that, you know, it's difficult for us to really add anything to that. I think we've got to add, of course, that football should be a spectacle and, and football should always bring people together. It uh, doesn't matter where they're from and who they are. And so if if tonight does go without incident, then I would say that is, uh, again, a, a triumph for football over everything else. France is tied with Turkey on points at the top of the group with 19 points each. Iceland is in third place with 15 points, so that's why France hasn't quite qualified yet. There are two matches left against Andorra and Moldova over in November. Some other uh, international news. The U21s played on Thursday. Very convincing 5-0 win uh, in Calais against Azerbaijan. Two goals from Odson Edouard, who now has, I believe, six goals in, in the last three for the U21s. Yeah. Also, yeah. also, yeah, also scoring Danaxel Zagadou, Hussam Awar, and Arnaud Nordin. Uh, they play again tomorrow away to Slovakia. Some contract news. 
uh, for the, well, not contract, but administrative news for the French FA. Uh, Christian, it seems that Noël Legret might be running again for a re-election next year at the head of the FA. Yeah, I mean, like like every <laughs> every seemingly long-lasting French politician <laughs> knows when to run, you know, a year after winning the World Cup um, and, and having a very successful uh, Women's World Cup hosted in France this summer, which obviously you were a part of, Pierre-Paul. Um, yes. Yeah, I fun. mean, listen, he's, he's quite a polarizing character. I mean, only six weeks ago, he tried to sort of uh, somewhat play down uh, the issue of homophobia in uh, Ligue 1 and Ligue 2 stands, which is another issue entirely. Um, but I think, you know, it's important that there is a continued symbiosis between the president and, and also, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the men's team's manager. And I think we, you know, we have that. They have a very good relationship. Um, were, were France to have qualified tonight? Of course, they didn't. Didier mm -hmm. Deschamps has been offered a two-year extension as well. Um, so that remains on ice for November, probably. Uh, but listen, a, a man who has done an enormous amount for, for, for women's football um, has actually probably received less credit than he deserves for the continued uh, and renewed efforts from a grassroots perspective to ensure that that talent uh, conveyor belt in France continues to run. And, um, you know, the, the only element that, that France haven't quite got right yet is being able to kind of internationalize the French football success, both at club level and, and national level more effectively. I think many people would agree that from a social media perspective, actually, they're probably the most effective national team at the moment. And I thought they, they did that all very, very well during That's, the World Cup. Yes. Uh, but actually, in terms of capitalizing that from an international perspective, um, this farce that you've seen, obviously, with the World Cup, uh, the two stars on the shirt, the new French shirt, not being available <laughs> for ages and then only being available in, in batches of several thousand and not being available globally seemed to me to be absolutely ridiculous um, and, a, and a real sort of missed opportunity to capitalize on on the success and the extent to which I think a lot of people fell in love with the French team because of the enormous diversity reflected in, in the 23 and, and also just the sort of real, real party atmosphere that, that the social media that, that the French national team were putting up there brought to the overall game and the overall tournament. So, yeah, in summary, he's doing a very good job. And, and uh, whilst actually it's quite difficult to find people within the game who say consistently nice things about him, uh, <laughs> he certainly knows when to, when to run. Um, uh, and, yeah, I, I'd, be, I'd be surprised, actually, if anybody even opposes him. Yep. We will follow that story closely. Um, Le Grayet met with the president of the Algerian FA uh, over the weekend to discuss potentially a match against them in early 2020. No announcement yet, but that would be a, a, a historic fixture, of course. Algeria are actually playing in France tomorrow. They're playing in Lille against Colombia. Uh, so there's, you know, obviously a significant, uh, a very big Algerian di diaspora in France. And Quite a few Colombians as well, so it's expected to be a, a good crowd over there. Uh, in other similar news, Côte d'Ivoire and the DRC were playing in France over the weekend, uh, yesterday in fact. They were playing in Amiens of all places. 3-1 uh, win for Côte d'Ivoire with goals for Nicolas Pepe and Wilfried Zaha. Right, let's move on to Ligue 1 and the big news of the day, of course. 
Lyon have announced the successor for the Brazilian man manager Silvino. Uh, the nominees were Laurent Blanc, Jocelyn Gourvenec, Jose Mourinho, and Rudy Garcia. And Tony, the winner was Rudy Garcia. What are your thoughts? It it was it was shocking. I, I mean, honestly, I thought the the you know just hearing his name was somewhat of a uh, just a, a media mention in a way, and just because it. I don't honestly. I never thought he was a bad manager, uh, but he his comments about Lyon, um, the way he left Marseille. Uh, I mean, the transfers for Marseille were were they were bad. They weren't good transfers. Um, he wasn't convincing, uh, and then it's just you know taking a, it's somewhat like a you know taking on any Saint Etienne. Uh, uh, former, you you have to be really careful on who you choose, and I think for Lyon fans, it was just absolutely shocking. Uh, <laughs> this, there's just no other way to put it. Well, I mean, I I, I don't know if it would it would be quite as bad as taking a former Saint Etienne man, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> it is true that I mean, some of the Lyon fans, a lot of the Lyon fans I know personally, they might not be a representative group, but. I know they really, really disliked Garcia when he was at Marseille, especially he has a kind of habit of, of blaming referees or, you know, finding other uh, scapegoats, yeah. Uh, yeah. which is undeniable. But, but Christian, you know, obviously, even though some things went wrong at Marseille, which, you know, tends to happen for any manager at, at Marseille, to be honest, Rudy Garcia <laughs> does have a, a, a very strong track record. I can't believe you set me up here, Paul, to be the one defending him tonight. Unbelievable. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> um, no, listen, I, I think Lyon fans tonight are struggling to understand the logic behind this appointment. And it's a bit shocking to them, especially because they have a president who typically thinks absolutely everything out, out you know, fairly, mm. fairly accurately in over 30 plus years, fairly brilliantly. I think it has to be said in terms of how the club is run. So... Sure. I understand the, the, the surprise and, and shock. Um, I think he has sort of, and when I say he, I mean Lyon President Jean-Michel Aulas, I think he made a, a first fairly big miscalculation, and I think he made it this summer already. I think it's important, again, to kind of look at the context here um, of hiring someone who, well, hiring two people to take control, and Aulas in his tenure, has always wanted control of essentially mm. everything. He's typically picked managers who he knew he could not necessarily bully, but either have a very productive working relationship with or essentially control. And, um, you know, all of a sudden he didn't even speak the same language as, as, as Silvino. Um, mm. so, so there's that, you know, I, I think, yes, Rudy Garcia, when he took over at Marseille, had a good spell. Uh, initially, um, mm. I think we also have to remember that he had the worst uh, win ratio in 2018-19 for a Marseille manager since the early 2000s. Um, I, I think the 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 irony, and, and I've seen a lot of Lyon fans today uh, sending me messages, uh, sending me tweets from Olas from three years ago or two years <laughs> ago, demonstrating about uh, the arrogant Garcia and. And no, Garcia is not having a Leon job and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> they they should yeah. have an interesting history. Yeah, exactly. And and so, 
the beginning of November, this this Marseille Lyon game, which maybe we'll, we'll touch on, maybe we won't, is going to be crazy. It's going to be probably as intense as it was when uh, a couple of seasons ago they put up uh, the Marseille fans put up Mathieu Valbuena <laughs> in effigy because um, he's he's the last high profile high profile figure to go from Marseille to Lyon, right? right. Uh, so Rudy Garcia is next. Um, yeah, so I think Olas maybe was a little bit shocked at his own. Uh, boldness in appointing a duo in the sporting director of Juninho and, and the manager Silvino, who basically both had zero to none experience in the roles that they were given. And so has very aggressively returned to try and bring back stability. And so stability, stability to him was a French-speaking coach. I think the Jose Mourinho thing, frankly, was more of a PR stunt. I don't think they could actually get near Possibly, his salary. Yeah. Um so it was always, in my view, going to be a French-speaking coach. And then, all of a sudden, it was the question of Laurent Blanc wanting, apparently, to really quite change the makeup of the backroom staff. And um, Rudy Garcia, who basically knew, I think, that he needed his reputation to be repaired after last season. Also, things at Ice Roma didn't end well either. So, mm. uh, all of a sudden, he becomes a little bit of a toxic good in terms of the European managerial market. And so sees Lyon as a fantastic opportunity to ride that ship pretty quickly. You know, you look at Laurent Blanc, who I think was the other very serious contender. And Jean-Michel Oles has said in an interview with RMC tonight that actually almost hinted that Juninho was the one who picked Rudy Garcia and that he feels very fondly for, for Laurent Blanc. And, and maybe he received some backlash or differing opinions from the rest of the Lyon board with regards to Laurent Blanc. But Laurent Blanc has been out of work now for... Was it three years? Three years, three, yeah. Three years, yeah. Years. Um, and that is toxic, unfortunately, because uh, regardless of whether or not you did a good job previously, it's all, you know, fans, the, the opinion of fans are increasingly important for clubs, not really because of the kind of monetary value of fans, but it's much more the fact that fans can affect players and coaches and players' families and coaches' families much mm. more than they've ever been able to through social media. I mean, we saw last week the Toulouse manager, Alain Casanova, who stepped down because uh, yeah, members of the family were receiving death threats on, on, on Twitter. Um, so, you know, that, that I think is, is, is all pretty difficult for someone like Laurent Blanc now. Um, in terms of the sort of football that we can expect, Really, who knows? I mean, it's someone who has always surrounded himself with assistants who have expertise in defending and coaching defense. Um, and this, again, is an incredibly attacking squad. And I think the thing that Silvino got completely wrong was not only did he fail to uh, figure out his settled 11 or, or settled formation in those opening 10 matches, 10, 10 competitive matches that he had in charge, but he was incredibly conservative. Uh, as a coach with with one of the I think probably Lyon's one of Lyon's most exciting sides ever. Yeah, from, and from on young... that point, um, if I recall correctly, when when Garcia arrived at Marseille, it was around you know this time of the season, sometime in October or November, uh, and the first match was against PSG, and they set up you know in the most defensive way possible. They had zero shots and mm -hmm. a, a ridiculously low possession stat, etc. And it was, you know, the first time in years that Marseille had been so, you know, uncreative. And I I think for the first few weeks, at least, I don't remember exactly how long it lasted. That was a kind of trademark of, of that team. 
And, you know, seeing that he's arriving in similar circumstances here with a few big games up ahead, obviously the Champions League, the one against Marseille, as you mentioned, how, you know, we can wonder, ask ourselves, how is he going to strike a balance between, you know, the temptation maybe of, of doing that again, if, if that's one of his strengths, and, as you mentioned, the, the squad that he has. Uh, but, but Tony, some of the news uh, from today, and also from the past week, really, was that uh, the kind of Lyon prodigy, that a lot of fans are, are excited about. Ryan Cherki has been training with the first team for a week and has continued to do so today with Garcia. Do you think he might figure with the team anytime soon? I mean, he could, right? But like like uh, Christian was saying, this is one of the most uh, uh, exciting Lyon uh, teams we've had. Uh, I don't. I I love him as a player. I think that he'll be, uh, you know, our next big player. And you know, I, I I see all the quality that he has. But who? Where does he play? Does he play Sawa? Like, w- where does he fit in right now? Is it a good time to put him in? I'm I'm not sure. Uh, and I'm I maybe would even lean toward towards that it's not yet. Um, I'd like to see him on the team uh, on the uh, on the senior squad and to be worked in in certain situations, but. What sort of impact does that have? Does it have a meaningful impact? I'm just not sure. Um, and I, I would I would rather see uh, Lyon try to, um, you know, piece together the season uh, to, to have a respectable finish. Uh, it's with with a move like this, it's it's really like uh, I think it, it kind of teeters to the point where you're not sure does this spiral out of control or does this, you know, okay, can we, maybe is this a coach that we can settle in and just try to find a finish somewhere? Yeah. And I had another question, actually. Uh, you mentioned at the start of your answer, Christian, I think that uh, you said that Olas suggested on the radio that it was Junio's decision, something like that. Yeah. But in the in the official statement they released earlier in the day, you know, it seemed to really kind of uh, frame Olas as you know, obviously yeah. in his great wisdom and uh, and uh, experience <laughs> and so on, <laughs> be the man behind this decision. So it's, I mean, if, I don't know what ask, to make of didn't that. He, yeah. Didn't he also say that um, if I if I uh, if I was looking to appoint uh, Laurent Blanc, I would say so or something like that. Didn't he have a quote saying that a, a little earlier on, like maybe last week? Uh, I don't know. Maybe I missed that one. Oh, no, I know. I know what you mean. No, yeah, he, he did say something he like said that. He said, if Laurent Blanc was my priority, I wouldn't tell you. Um, yeah, that's Oh, right. I wouldn't tell you. I meant, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's something we don't understand. Um, typically, I've, I've yeah. always sort of got or generally tried to get and, and understand and, and reason with uh, Jean-Michel Oles' thinking. I still think he's one of the most intelligent men in French football. I think you have to look at the contract length. I mean, it's essentially a year and a half. Um, And Mm. that, to me, is interesting. I just think Oles was shell-shocked. You know, this is the the quickest that Lyon have ever fired a manager, the shortest amount of competitive matches in in Sylvania that that a Lyon manager has ever presided over. And, you know, this is a club that's renowned for producing stability. And I think even... Two weeks before the decision to sack Silvino was announced, Orles was coming out in, in sort of mixed zones post-matches and saying, you know, what stability is, is what this institution does, etc. I think where he just couldn't accept it anymore was, was not necessarily that things weren't going well, but there wasn't the intent to attack. 
Uh, and he sort of referenced that against um, following the game against uh, Nantes and then also following the game against Saint-Étienne where he said we cannot do nothing mm. in terms of the kind of overall intentions of the side. So maybe there's something we're missing here. I know, I know on very good authority that Jean-Michel Oles's dream has been absolute dream has to bring us has been to bring Arsene Wenger to Lyon. Uh, I thought it was interesting that there wasn't really much in the press discussed about that. I think his name was touted pretty much a day after Silvino sacking and then very quickly disappeared. Um, well, reportedly he had rejected them over the summer, correct? Yes, I mean, I, I don't know to what extent there, w- there was truth in that or not. I think it's quite okay. interesting. I mean, Wenger is a kind of a separate topic altogether. But yeah. it, you know, he, gave, he gave the interview with Bean Sports two or three weeks ago saying, you know, I'm absolutely ready to come back and I'm, I'm willing to look at absolutely any challenge. So you started to think, oh, maybe there, maybe there was going to be something in that. If you only. Know, yeah, yeah, if only now. I mean, we're all sitting here going, if only now. <laughs> um, you know, that, that, that is interesting to me, too, because... Jean-Michel Oles loves to underplay how much money Lyon have. Uh, Lyon have hundreds of millions of euros that they could be spending. Um, yes, it, it's going into other things, like, for example, the investment into the basketball side uh, with, with Tony Parker's project, um, which, which he's dealing with. He just announced last week they're building another sort of concert type, well, it's just some sort of space in the kind of Parc OL that's going to be available for, for concerts and stuff like that. Um, they're going but, to buy. Um, they're also going to buy one of the uh, franchises in the uh, NWSL, yeah, the the North American Women's League. Which exactly, would be fascinating. Yeah, uh, and, and and he's very convinced that's ha- that's imminent now. He thinks it's mm. sort of in one or, one or two months' time. So you know, he's he's got his his fingers in many pies to borrow a sort of British saying. Um, <laughs> but then it, it doesn't really. It, it's not really coherent with what he likes to say in other interviews and 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 maybe we are have to believe it's all for sure but when he says you know i'm not going to retire until we win the champions league i genuinely believe that when he says that because you know this is a man who's come in the 90s from the second division brought incredible stability built the world's arguably the world's most successful female team and has built arguably number two number three best academy in the world all in the space mm. of 20, 25 years. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm wrestling with that a little bit tonight, and I can completely understand why Lyon fans are concerned. I think what might have happened was there was a panic about timing. We have to get someone in before uh, the club, club activity starts again after this international break. Let's bring someone in on a year-and-a-half contract with experience of winning things in Ligue 1. And then let's see where, where we go from here. Where I don't understand, and I don't think anyone understands, from Bilal Ghazi, who is probably the most informed person on Lyon at L'Equipe, to, to myself, to any of the fans out there, is what the hell Juninho is doing. Uh, and, and actually, you know, he made a huge bold step with uh, bringing in basically his friend, right? In mm. Sylvia. Um, and... You know, now Le Parisien reporting today, he really didn't want Rudy Garcia, Jean-Michel Oulas saying in the press tonight, actually, Juninho made the decision, saying that over and over again very, very clearly. Either Oulas is already, I don't know, maybe putting him in a kind of scapegoat position so that if this goes wrong, he can completely justify getting rid of Juninho after two supposed failed managerial hires. Or, you know, or there's some real disconnect here in terms of messaging. But it's just not like Lyon for that to be the case. Yeah, that's that's... Absolutely true. And uh, I mean, hopefully you'll get to ask him 
on the president's podcast one of these days. That that would be fascinating. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'll put in a word. I'll put in a word. <laughs> <laughs> um, in other news, you mentioned that Alain Casanova had resigned from Toulouse uh, earlier last week. Uh, you mentioned the threats and, and, and the reasons for which he, he decided to uh, call it quits. Uh, Toulouse are 18th in the league. They announced today they were appointing Antoine Comboiré, who is, uh, this is his seventh club in France that he'll be managing. What do you think of that appointment, Christian? Uh, listen, I don't think it's particularly inspiring. Mm. Um, I think it's, again, made, it's another one-and-a-half-year contract. I think it's made to try and ensure that Toulouse don't go down. And I think what is going to be really quite a competitive league at the bottom this season uh, I think both Mets, Mets maybe less so, but Brest have brought brought in some some great young players, have a very coherent style of play, did well to bring in uh, the sort of attacking manager Olivier Delalio, who uh, obviously was responsible for Dijon being in this division for several seasons by being fairly expansive in the football that they play. Comboire, I think, is fantastically good with a settled team. Um, I think, and he did pretty well to be honest if we're if we're being honest here guys to keep Dijon in the league last season mm. um I don't think it's inspiring I think it's you know again not really giving somebody else you know maybe in Ligue 2 a bit of a chance but you know you have to understand that, you know in, in, to be in Toulouse president Olivier Sadron's position you haven't played really even 30 minutes of vaguely nice football this season uh you have you know, someone in Max Alain Gradel who is basically, you know, perpetually furious and, you know, wants some <laughs> idea of what the vision is because, you know, frankly, he's, he's shown incredible loyalty to, to this club. I mean, a little anecdote for you guys. I mean, maybe you remember it, but it wasn't, maybe it was last season or it was the season before. In a kind of Casper Dolberg fashion, he had his Rolex watch stolen from the Toulouse dressing room. And actually, it wasn't. Uh, uncovered it was clearly one of the well the, the Toulouse determined it was clearly one of the younger players and 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 Gradle despite basically carrying the team I think last season he contributed about 45 to 50 percent of Toulouse's assists and goals combined um you know he's still yeah. there and, and had opportunities to go to the Middle East this this summer and, and turn them down so you know whatever Comboare ends up doing from a tactical perspective he has to ensure that Gradle is front and center whether he's playing as a 10 or on the wing, and, and build around that and try to build some sort of coherent style here at a club that continues to have some exciting young players. You know, obviously, we talked a little bit about, well, very fleetingly about France under-21s tonight. Um, yeah, on, on the uh, at right-back is, is a very good player. Um, yeah. And, you know, you've got, you've got Sangale still there. You have a couple of other young central midfielders who, who are very promising and, and could create a really, in my view, a really coherent three-man midfield, but just hasn't happened so far. Yeah, no, I agree. They, they do have an interesting midfield. I've, I've kind of noticed them over the, you know, the start of the season with Sangare, as you mentioned, and, and Makengo and, and Vainqueur doing all right. And, and the, of course, the new guy, Kouloris up front, who, who has four goals, I think. But yeah. Toulouse are, they remind me a little bit of, you know, let's say Aston Villa of the early 2010s, where you just wonder how bad can they get and still not go down year <laughs> after year. It keeps on going. Um, good luck to uh, Comboiré. I've always, I've always had a little uh, weak spot for Comboiré since he got fired from PSG, even though they were top of the league 
I thought that was a massive injustice to him and to his career, but there we go. Uh, speaking of PSG, Neymar is out for four weeks. Uh, he was injured on inter international duty with Brazil over the weekend. Um, Cavani's back in training. Mbappe is doing better, but we don't know exactly if he will play. Uh, Tony, how is this going to impact uh, PSG in the next few weeks? It's, you know, it just seems that they can never get any cohesive unit together lately, um, and especially with Neymar. You you feel bad for him uh, in a way, even uh, you know, even as a Lyon fan and uh, as a a Lyon fan, you you want to see PSG at their best because uh, you like you you know when they do finally go down, you'd like them to be at full strength. But I don't know. I, I really want to. I would like to see more. Uh, uh, more of why he, he, he tends to, to get these type of injuries because some of these injuries seem to be fitness injuries. Um, but as far as actual uh, on-field play, um, I think it kind of puts them back to the uh, uh, back to the uh, more of a defensive structure until they can kind of get uh, Mbappe back uh, at full strength, uh, maybe even um, more of like a, a 4-4-2 or something. Know something they, they could you know play off of what they have available um, but I mean injuries have plagued them but they're still at the top of the top of the table so they're still PSG <laughs> yeah um, they should be okay in the league yeah. yeah this time it's a it's a muscular injury for Neymar it's not uh, the uh, the um, metatarsal that's been causing him problems for a right. couple of years uh, very quickly, a roundup of the women's football action over the weekend. Lyon won 4-0, sending them top of the league on goal difference. But uh, both Lyon and PSG still have the maximum points possible at this stage in the season. And there's a bit of a Nordic theme this week in the Women's Champions League uh, for the first leg of the round of 16. On Wednesday, Lyon play in Denmark against Fortuna Hjoring. Uh, Amel Majri, France International, is is a doubt for that one. And PSG play in Iceland against Breda Blik. Uh, lots of fun club names that you've never heard of in the Women's <laughs> Champions League. Always. Very well done. Thank you. <laughs> That's all for today. Thank you, Thomas, for coming on. It was great to have you. No, thank you. And thank you, Christian. Thank you, guys. As always, make sure you keep an ear out for the preview show that comes out on Friday morning and follow at JFFN on Twitter and get football, Fran get football news for all the latest French football news. Thank you for listening.